Podcast brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the podcast. Hi, I'm Marjorie Malpedi. Today, we're going to discuss the findings and implications of a new paper. It's called The Mental Health Effects of COVID-19, Especially for Emerging Adults. It's by Dr. Jeffrey Arnett, and it was commissioned by the Rudiman Family Foundation. Our guests today are Dr. Arnett and Sharon Shapiro, who is a trustee at the foundation. Hello to you both, and congratulations on the new paper. Thank you. Nice to be here. So a little bit about both of you, and then we'll really get into unpacking the findings of this and the implications. So Dr. Arnett is a senior research scholar in the Department of Psychology at Clark University, but he's perhaps best known as the leading authority in the world on the age period from 18 to 29. Dr. Arnett authored the term emerging adulthood, which added the connotation of transition to the period we most often refer to as just young adulthood. Dr. Annette, who taught at the University of Missouri, founded the Society of the Study of Emerging Adulthood, and he's the author of several books. Welcome, Jeff. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Are you guys okay if I just go with Jeff and Sharon today? Absolutely. Sharon, we are also delighted that you are here. The Ruderman Foundation has been a great partner to so many of us in college student mental health, including the Mary Christie Institute. So I'm actually going to start with you. The foundation has a particular focus on the mental health of teens and young adults. And this new paper is a really eye-opening look at how the pandemic has impacted mental health differently in different demographic groups like emerging adults. So I just was curious, what drew the foundation to commission this work? Was this something that you guys were particularly interested in? Yes. I mean, as a foundation, well before this paper, we focused on teen and college age mental health. And as a foundation, we look to research to support and generate solutions to the mental health crisis that we're dealing with. So we like to work to identify gaps in mental health resources and programs, and we work to fill these gaps by working with partners on different initiatives that we find to be innovative to to better help this population. And I can say the MCI has been recipient of that. Sharon and I worked together on a paper that we did on the experiences of students with peer support on college campuses. And we did a sort of a deep dive into the history of that and what's happening now as colleges and universities look to really expand their community of care. And what this paper found was that, as Sharon said, innovative new ways of actually students helping students. So Jeff, let's get to the report. The mental health impact of the pandemic on all of us has obviously been widely acknowledged, if not experienced personally. The title of the report infers that COVID had an even larger effect on this population group, emerging adults. Kind of a two-part question here. One is I want you to tell us what the data show, because your report was very clear on that. But I think it would be helpful too, Jeff, if you could tell us a little bit about the importance of the term emerging adults and how that actually worked into the findings of this paper. Sure. I'll be glad to tell you the background. So about 30 years ago, I got interested in studying people in their 20s, mainly because nobody had really done it before. I mean, there are lots of studies of college students, but nobody had really studied 
people through their 20s, college and non-college alike. And I found that fascinating from the beginning because it was really striking that they didn't seem like adolescents. I'd been studying adolescents for years, and they didn't seem like adolescents. Of course, they're not going through puberty. They're not in secondary school. They're not minors under the law. In a lot of obvious ways, they're not adolescents. But in psychology, many people were calling them late adolescents. But on the other hand, they didn't really seem fully adult. I mean, they clearly had this uncertainty themselves about their adult status. I would ask them as a standard part of my interview, do you feel like you've reached adulthood? Which I thought at first was a pretty simple question, but it turned out not to be. I rarely got a simple yes or no answer. Most people believed they were adults in some ways, but not others. And they would explain how they were adult and how they were not. So I studied them for years trying to understand where they were at in this space in between adolescence and young adulthood. And then when I began writing about them, I call them emerging adults to capture their sense of being on the way to adulthood, but not there yet. And so I proposed this idea of emerging adulthood in 2000, and it really took off in psychology and the other social sciences. It's an international field now of people who are fascinated by this age period as I am, and who resonated with that idea that they're not adolescence. They're not in an extended or late adolescence, but they're not fully adult either. I think that the previous work that you've done was so important to the field. Obviously, it was precedent setting. And it's a backdrop for the work that you've done recently with this paper. So start with what you learned and then sort of unpack what this has to do with what you already know about this age group. Sure. Well, I was asked by the Ruderman Foundation to write a report on emerging adults, mental health, in relation to COVID-19. And at the time, that was not something that I knew a lot about. I was aware, as we all are, that COVID-19 has been hugely disruptive to our society and to societies around the world. Especially in its early months, it caused the closing down of schools, of businesses, of whole societies. It ran rampant through human populations around the world. Millions of people died. Millions of people were hospitalized. We're all aware of that. And we're all aware of how governments responded to it. But we didn't really pay maybe so much attention to the mental health effects in the early part of the pandemic. And now that the pandemic has waned, I mean, it's still out there, but the vaccine being available so widely has really reduced the death rate and the hospitalization rate. One might think life has gone back to normal and that mental health effects were caused by the pandemic would now be receding as well. That's what I expected when I first started looking at this, but that's not what I found. I found quite surprisingly that across adult age groups from 18 through people in their 80s, there was a definite mental health effect of COVID-19. So we have excellent national data in the United States from the U.S. Census Bureau that was assessed before the pandemic began, so in 2019. And then after the pandemic started, every two months, the U.S. Census Bureau has been conducting national surveys of anxiety and depression, symptoms of anxiety disorder and depressive disorder. And so they have this 
marvelous data, extremely valuable data on people's psychological functioning and mental health functioning from before the pandemic until now. They're still collecting these data every couple of months. And the results were really shocking because they show a huge rise in mental health distress across age groups in 2020 when the pandemic first hit. And that pattern is still continuing. Even now, after the pandemic has waned in many ways, life has gone back to normal. People are back to school. Businesses have opened up. The unemployment rate has returned to the baseline. Even after life has returned to normal in all those ways, rates of anxiety and depression are nearly as high as they were at the peak of the pandemic. So that was shocking. But the other really surprising thing is that of all adult age groups, it's the emerging adults, ages 18 to 29, that are the most affected. So it's a very linear relationship. The older people get, the less they report anxiety and depression in response to the pandemic. So let me jump in here because this this is what's so interesting about your research. So the group less at risk physically from COVID has been most impacted by it emotionally and psychologically, correct? That's what's so surprising about it, Marjorie. You would think that it would be the older people who would be the most the most affected in their mental health, right? Because they were the most at risk for hospitalization and death during the pandemic, and they still are. And so you would have thought that their anxiety would have been sky high and it would have been depressing to them to think that they were so vulnerable in the first year of the pandemic, especially before the vaccines were developed. But it's actually just the opposite. The oldest Americans are the ones who are least likely to report symptoms of anxiety and depression. And meanwhile, the emerging adults, the 18 to 29-year-olds, they're at the healthiest period of the entire lifespan. It's healthier than childhood, and it's healthier than any adult age period as measured by rates of illness and disease and mortality. So they're the least effective, and yet they were the most affected in terms of their mental health, the least affected in physical health and mortality, and the most affected in their psychological symptomatology in response to the pandemic. That was a complete surprise. And that, that age effect has remained consistent throughout the pandemic until now. My latest data are from Last month, April of 2023, and that pattern still holds. It's the youngest American adults who have the highest symptoms of anxiety and depression, rising from 8 to 10% before the pandemic to 35 to 40% now. So it's, a, it's a, an extremely steep rise in this emerging adult age group. So obviously there's a million dollar, two million dollar questions here. So how do you account for this disconnect, Jeff? One, and and secondly, what is your theory about why these prevalence numbers are receding? I think it's mystifying, I will admit. I, I do think you can find explanations in 
a couple of places. One is that their lives really were deeply disruptive, 18 to 29 year olds. I mean, we all were. But if you think about what's going on from age 18 to 29, you're really trying to build the structure of an adult life, right? That's the age where most people are getting the education that's going to form the basis of some kind of long-term occupation or profession they're going to have. That's the age when people are moving out of their parents' household, learning how to function as an adult on their own. It's the age when people are having romantic relationships, thinking about what they want in a partner, trying to find out how potential partners respond to them. So they're moving toward building the structure of an adult life in education and work and love. And suddenly it was all blown up. I mean, they had to come home from college, as my own 23-year-old twins did in the middle of their sophomore year. Millions of others did, too. Had to completely close down what they were doing on campus, come home, take classes remotely. That was extremely disruptive. The ones who were working, either because they were done with their education or because they were working instead of getting education, or they were doing both, they lost their jobs in huge numbers. 18 to 29-year-olds were the age group most likely to lose their jobs because they're the most likely to be in these kinds of service professions like in restaurants and hotels, hospitality, service jobs of various kinds that were completely obliterated by COVID-19. So they couldn't do their education. They couldn't make progress in work. Obviously, they're not going out with romantic partners during the lockdown. And they also, many of them had to move home, again, mm -hmm. as my own kids did. And that was extremely disruptive. So it's, it's understandable that they would have responded so intensely to it. What's mysterious, though, is why their rates of anxiety and depression are still so high. Now that school has resumed and their unemployment rates have shrunk and they've all moved out of their parents' household again, you would think the rates would go down, but they haven't. So that's something really urgent here that we need to find out more about why. Right. And I know your paper calls for more research on that. So when I ask you, you talk about in your report that, that COVID-19 triggered a mental health crisis in emerging adults. But was this not the case leading up to COVID? And I, I think my follow-up question there is, does it not have to do with actually connecting back to your previous research, which is, is something about this developmental period? Yes. But the thing is, the differences have become much sharper, the age differences. It's true, Marjorie, that even before the pandemic, emerging adults showed higher rates of anxiety and depression than other adult age groups, and, and higher than, than younger children and adolescents, too. But they were only slightly higher. So if you look at this national data that I was mentioning, that I based most of my report on from the U.S. Census Bureau. In 2019, emerging adults report rates of anxiety symptoms at about 12% and depression symptoms at about 8%. Now, that's higher than any other adult age group, but not by much. Really, if you look at the data for all adult age groups, they're all sort of bunched up between 5 and 
12% on both anxiety and depression. But once COVID hits, the age differences get much steeper. Anxiety and depression go goes up among all adult age groups. I want to make sure that's clear. I'm not saying that people beyond emerging adulthood were not effective. Those things go up across adult age groups, but hugely more by emerging adults. So for anxiety from 12% to over 40%, for depression from 8% to over 35%. These are huge, huge rises. And it's still about where it was at the peak of the pandemic for both anxiety and depression. That's what's so shocking, Mm. I think, in the data. And Jeff, you name subgroups like young women and Asian Americans where this actually was disproportionately affected these groups. And you also include as a vulnerable group, college students in there. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. So across age groups from childhood through old age, women report higher rates than men, than, and in girls higher rates than boys of psychological distress, especially anxiety and depression. We've known that for a long time. It's a, a very stable finding in mental health research. But what's striking about the response to COVID-19 is that the differences grew even wider. So young women were already higher than young men in mental health distress, but the gap between them grew even greater. Because even though anxiety and depression did rise for young men, they rose at an even higher rate for young women. So that's a group uh, that's especially distressed in the response to COVID-19. As for the Asian Americans, unfortunately, COVID-19 triggered a racist back against the Asian Americans, it's, of course, ridiculous and irrational and insane to blame Asian Americans for the virus who had nothing to do with it. We still don't really know entirely where it came from, but if it came from China, somebody living in New York City, Chinatown, isn't to blame for it. It's a really preposterous response to it. But there's no doubt that Asian Americans were singled out for hatred and attacks by other Americans in response to COVID-19. So they, too, show a high rate of mental health distress, and they report being targeted by other Americans at a much higher rate than before COVID-19. I mentioned college students, and I want to bring Sharon in here because so much of the foundation work has to do with college students. Jeff, you may know MCI does a a lot of work with college presidents. The Rudman Family Foundation just sponsored a big event at Georgetown that brought together 22 presidents but with behavioral health experts, and we had the Surgeon General come. And it's all to better understand what more can be done to a address the campus mental health crisis. And again, we've been working at this for years based on other research, like the Healthy Minds survey work, which I'm sure you're aware of, which really tracked the increase in anxiety and depression from 2010 to 2020, just before the pandemic. So I want to have you talk a little bit about what you think the impacts were specifically for college students and what that means for higher education leaders. This is part of the work that we've done together is to bring information to higher education leaders who are really working hard on these issues. I mean, I just am 
really thrilled about this paper and thank you to Dr. Arnett because it gives us some insight into why this population is struggling and, and gives us some concrete recommendations of what to do moving forward. For years, we hear everybody talking about the crisis, but there's not always a lot of solutions that are presented. So I'm very appreciative of some of these recommendations that are discussed in this paper and can give us all some work to do moving forward. Absolutely. So Jeff, on that, what do we do about this big and troubling issue? It's difficult, Marjorie. I I think it's really problematic. Getting a good education has become so important in the modern economy. It's been important for a long time, but it's more important now than ever before, now that we're in what economists call the knowledge economy, where you really have to know things that other people don't know in order to get the best jobs and all the new jobs that are coming out. They're not going to be in manufacturing so much as in the knowledge economy. And so we need to make this investment as a society to making sure that young people get the education they need. And it's such a crucial time. This is when people usually get that education that's going to be the foundation of their economic life for decades to come. And now it was blown up. And and we know that the rate of dropout was very high. As I said, colleges and universities closed down and went to remote learning. It was an amazing response, actually, to being able to transition to remote learning so that they would have some way of still making progress in their education. But there was a huge amount of dropping out. And even now, many of them have not come back. So we know it was really damaging to many people in their educational progress. What we don't know so much yet is how college students' mental health looks in relation to non-college emerging adults of the same age. Unfortunately, no research yet has made that comparison. They were both affected, and maybe in different ways, but it's something we need to find out more about. Hmm. Yeah, we would be very interested to learn that. And this um, gets to your point about additional research. What other research are you thinking, what are the gaps that you think we really need to be focusing on? Well, I think above all, Marjorie, we need to know more about why people continue to be distressed. I mean, since life has gone back to normal in so many ways, how could the reports of anxiety and depression still be so much higher than they were just before the pandemic? You know, this is great survey data that the U.S. Census Bureau has provided. It's really invaluable for alerting us to this mental health crisis. But it leads a lot of questions unanswered, some of the most important questions, which is mainly why? Why do people still feel so bad even though life appears to have gone back to normal in so many ways? So I would love to see us urgently go forward with interviewing people, not just survey data, not just tell me on a scale of one to five how anxious you feel or how depressed you feel, but tell me in your own words why you're still distressed. That's a study we need urgently to do. And then I think the other thing we really need to do is reform our mental health delivery system so that we're ready for the next crisis, because there is going to be more of this. I mean, these kinds of, of 
pandemics have taken place periodically throughout human history. It's only a matter of time to the next one. And I think if there's a positive at all from COVID-19 in terms of mental health, it's that a lot of mental health delivery was effectively moved online. So through so-called telehealth delivery, a lot of therapists who couldn't meet directly with clients anymore began to deliver therapy online. And there are mixed evaluations of that so far. Many people, including emerging adults, still would have preferred a face-to-face therapist. But it did show that people can get benefits from telehealth delivery of mental health services. And one of the things I propose in the report is to form now a telehealth core of mental health practitioners who could be ready in the case of the next crisis, whether it's triggered by the pandemic or something else, to provide resources. We have a generation of people right now, the baby boomers, the generation that I'm in, who are going to be retiring in massive numbers in the decade to come. But they still have immense skills and very valuable skills that most of them really enjoy sharing with people and using to help people. So if we can form a telehealth core now, people who are ready to step in in case of another crisis, in fact, in response to the currently existing crisis where many people are unable to get the mental health services they need, I think that would be a a great thing to come out of the pandemic that we could point to that is as bad as it has been and continues to be, this might be one thing we gain from it. So speaking of learning from the experience, you have a strong recommendation here for colleges and universities to not just, okay, that happened, now we're moving on. It's to look back and really survey what they thought worked and didn't work, right? Yeah, I think a lot could be gained from convening a conference of mental health practitioners and policymakers on the college level and finding out what worked and what didn't. They all had to create this on the fly, and I'm sure they came up with all sorts of answers to what to do about the mental health crisis among their students. And so I would love to see the Ruderman Foundation maybe convene something like that, since they've done many, many good things in addressing college mental health. What would people say who are the leaders of these college mental health programs What would they say to each other about what worked and what did not and how we can prepare for next time? Yeah, and I'm I'm just doing my own editorial here, Jeff, but one of the things I'd be really interested in, it's what we're looking at, is it's not just about service delivery either. It's this the pandemic changed the rules in so many ways in higher ed. And one was the relationship between other community members. Right, faculty and staff were they were all in the we were all in the same lifeboat together, so to speak. So that changed the dynamics between those sort of sacred cows, which were the lines between academic and student affairs, students and faculty. Everyone is in it together. A and B, it really changed the world. So one of the things that would be interesting to look at is not just service delivery, but also how it changed the communities overall, and particularly the community of care. You know, that's a really good point. And because the crisis is still going on, the mental health crisis, I wonder what they would say now. I mean, what are they seeing 
on college campuses and how are they responding to it? They, they must be inundated with students who need mental health services, given these high rates nationally. And so how are they coping with that? How are they adapting to it? How are they managing to try to respond to what the students need? Mm-hmm. Well, clearly a lot more work needs to be done. I, I hope to work with both of you on this going forward. This is something I, I think is really needed. Dr. Arnett, this paper is really eye-opening. Terrific work. Thank you so much for to Sharon Shapiro and the Rudiman Family Foundation for commissioning this. Again, this is great work. It's just been released. Before I let you guys go, anything that in either of your work domains that's worth talking about? Sharon, I know you guys are always working on some initiative. Is there anything new that you'd just like to bring up before we say goodbye? I mean, I would just add, as you mentioned before, the ACOM, the group of college presidents, we're working with a lot of different universities trying to figure out some of these issues. And I think the the colleges that have more funding are way ahead of other colleges that do not. And, you know, we would love to see some excellent models that are working towards better supporting students and sharing those models. That's something that we're, we would love to work towards. I think to come up with some of these innovative ideas is not the easiest thing to move the needle on. We keep working at it. And I think there is great work being done predominantly in the state of Massachusetts where we're, that's where our work is. So just would love to continue this moving forward and hope for some success. That's great. That's great, Sharon. We are happy to be doing that with you. Jeff, your body of work is obviously incredible in this area. What's next for you? Well, I'm going to continue to research this and follow this pattern. And I'm planning now to write an academic article based on the data that I present in the report and looking at it in some other ways statistically and in the context of research that continues to come out. Because I really think that people needed to be alerted to this. I think it's great that the Ruderman Foundation has funded this report. I think it was really a brilliant insight on their part to recognize that there may be a problem here. And I think now that we've identified this, we do need to respond to it. We need to get the word out. And I'll be trying to do that, both through sharing this report and writing academic articles, because I think psychologists need to know, policy makers need to know, we all need to know. This explains a lot about why our society seems so wigged out, I think, in the last few years. COVID dislocated things, and they haven't returned to normal. It only seems like they have. In terms of mental health, things have definitely not returned to normal. That's something that people need to know, and we need to work together to develop effective responses to it. Right. We have yet to really understand the manifestation of this incredible disruptive set of events. And again, I applaud you for this work, and I hope we see more of it. So both of you, please keep us posted. Thank you so much for being on the Quadcast. Thank you. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.